This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. This is the first time we're together since last week's cabinet shuffle and there's a lot to talk about there. National unity is front and center and the West is not happy. We have Christian Freeland trying to make nice with Jason Kenney. And Doug Ford seems to be recasting himself from plain-talking populist to diplomatic statesman. On the opposition benches, conservative leader Andrew Scheer fired two of his top aides. Maybe it was actually three, depending on how you count. Will that save his leadership? A bit of good news for the government and the rest of us. As you heard in Bob's news, there's a tentative agreement in the CN strike. And provincially, speaking of strikes, the teachers have started their job action. We will look at the impact of that. As always, we want to hear from you. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner of Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Partner of Earnscliff Strategy Group's Toronto office, and Kim Wright, Principal of Right strategies. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Hello. Oh, hello. Okay. <laughs> so the first thing, I mean, I I have to admit that when I first heard this, it made me think of Monty Python. <laughs> Remember the Ministry of Silly Walks? <laughs> All too well. <laughs> okay. So we've got a, a ministry or and a minister of middle class prosperity. What the heck? Well, in fact, the minister doesn't even quite know what the heck uh, she's had or to. Or the bureaucrats. <laughs> or the bureaucrats. Uh, she's, in fact, when asked, so what does your ministry mean? What does it do? What is the middle class? What there, is the middle class? There is no answer from uh, from the government, which, you know, that, you know, when you're supposed to be comms people or at least thoughtful uh, comms people and you've created this whole post, maybe talking point number one, what does your ministry do? Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, it could be anything and everything. And frankly, it's no different than, you know, we have Indigenous Affairs uh, ministers in the, in this country who are taking children to the Supreme Court as we speak uh, on Indigenous issues and not wanting to pay and compensate. So, you know, we'll we'll see. Maybe it's all a bit, a bit of doublespeak. I, I just say, I think it's a challenge. I, I get where the government is trying to go with naming these kinds of portfolios. But when you start naming portfolios out of the norm, you know, the normal ones like being finance and economic development and, and some of the other ones are small business and, 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 and the, and the like. Um, you start getting into, you know, people scratching their heads saying, okay, well, is it just another branding exercise? Is it just another fluff, you know, you know, trying to appease, uh, and or tick off what are the promises and saying, well, of course, 
course, we've, we've got a minister in charge of the middle class. Well, what does that mean? And, and how does that affect really the finance minister and the economic development minister? And they've also divided that portfolio into two or three. So I, I just don't know where they're going with this. And I think the challenge is, um, are you setting up that minister to fail, quite frankly? Like, so, you know, when the mandate letters come out, and those are the letters that the government will ultimately put out to say, here's what your responsibilities are to each of the ministers. Um, you know, I, I, I think people are going to sort of want to look to see what that minister's mandate letter is and how does it affect the finance minister and you know, some of the other economic ministries uh, in their uh, in their responsibilities. So it can cause some some challenges. Uh, Charles, I, I don't think I'm uh, the only person that's had a bit of fun with this. No, it's uh, there's a little there's always a risk of virtue signaling when you're when you're naming ministers after desired outcomes, such as middle class prosperity. I prefer her alternate title, which is associate minister of finance, which sounds a, a little more impressive and daunting. Um, I will say <laughs> that the minister is uh, a woman by the name of Mona Forche uh, from Ottawa Vanier, who was first elected in a by election in only 2017, following the untimely death of uh, Marel Belanger. And uh, she went on very quickly to become the co-chair of the Federal Liberal Platform Committee and is really, really an accomplished person um, and very, very smart. It was her and Ralph Goodale who were actually co-chairs of the Platform Committee. And um, I'm sure she will be of considerable assistance to the Minister of Finance going forward. Okay. Uh, I sure as heck weren't going to put Morneau as the Minister of Middle Class (laughs) Prosperity. So let's just go from there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, a lot of them aren't uh, what we would consider the middle class, but you never know. Um, So let's move right along. And frankly, it's interesting. You know, I, I had an interview with the new Minister of Seniors yesterday. We're going to run it on the weekend. And for most of the questions, she kept saying, I'm not really briefed yet. And you know what? She has a point. But... That that uh, excuse or explanation, uh, it's only going to last so long. Well, and I think a lot of you know cabinet ministers. Well, we we see this. So the three of us obviously have been in, being involved in politics the way that we are, the level that we have been in the past and continue to be. We know and we do give some deference to cabinet ministers. You know, once the government has been has been elected and there's a new swearing in, there is a bit of time where you know you. But yeah. but also the, it's the it's the smart ones or the the really eager ones that will have lines or will have some level of response to be able to say, you know, here's what I'm going to do. But the, the other ones won't take radio interviews if they don't know what they're going to do for the sake of not saying, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So there is that kind of uh, issue that has to be <laughs> has to be considered. Okay. Uh, speaking of setting up to fail, Christopher Freeland, now the deputy premier and the minister of intergovernmental mm-hmm. affairs, as I predicted, uh, so is she being set up to fail? She, she went, she tried to make nice with Jason Kenney. I'm not sure how well that worked. What do you think? Well, you know, she's got a, uh, Minister Friedland's got a huge job ahead of her. There's no question about it. And the fact that the prime minister has made her deputy, deputy prime minister, uh, which is a title that most prime ministers don't give and Stephen Harper never did. And, and, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau certainly didn't do it the first term. But, but the fact that, He's made her intergovernmental affairs minister means that her job literally is to ensure that there is some sort of a fabric that's been that's being thread through some of the provinces and and keeping them happy. Um, I think that um, the job is going to be tough. I think what we've seen with 
Premier Kenny and what we're going to see with Premier Mo and others is sort of a really smiley kind of, hey, handshake, and yes, we're going to work together. And that really, I think, behooves each of them, the, the premiers as well as the minister herself, in the sense that, you know, you don't want to be seen, first off, to be out of the gate, you know, being antagonistic. But that file uh, and those files are going to get increasingly harder and more challenging uh, when the House resumes. Charles, uh, is she being set up to fail? No, in fact, um, I think her appointment to that role is really an acknowledgement that the uh, voters of Western Canada and specifically the Prairie Provinces sent the governing Liberals a, a very, very serious message that has to be taken seriously. And I think Minister Freeland has been given uh, inordinate uh, responsibility with regard to trying to find common ground with regards to Western Premiers, specifically Premiers Mo and Premier Kenny. Um, it will by Minister Freeland's own admission, require a lot of listening to understand more fully what the concerns of um, folks in the Prairie Provinces are. But we know that they're real. We know that this is a major challenge to national unity. And the first priority of any prime minister is national unity. Usually we see that through the lens of Quebec and the rest of Canada. But obviously what's happening in Western Canada is those are very real sentiments and very real concerns those folks are having. And the fact that he has appointed his most capable minister to that portfolio speaks volumes to his desire to address the issues. And uh, on the other hand, uh, Doug Ford is going to be hosting the next meeting of the premiers. I mean, yes, one thing to take the tone down to try to sound more reasonable. But, you know, it's starting to look like a, a complete personality transplant. <laughs> <laughs> it's why he was away for the six weeks during the campaign, Libby. No, just kidding, of course. Uh, no, Premier Ford has tried to, uh, since getting booed at the Raptors parade in the summer, uh, taken a deep look at what he and his government need to do to stop being one of the most vilified people in the country. Uh, he has uh, tried to recalibrate some of that. They certainly put ministers that are better capable of uh, sticking to their talking points and being being seen as empathetic. You look to people like Minister McNaughton, who on the labor file has actually quite uh, has a quite different approach than you would uh, traditionally expect from uh, from a conservative labor minister. Going back to Chrystia Freeland for a moment, it's interesting though. It is a bit of set her up to fail. If she succeeds, amazing. But she has also been given this responsibility, not the least of which. Because because there was those little blips in time during the election campaign, you may remember, where there was some potential thought processes that she might be uh, have leadership aspirations. There was a website, whether it was an accurate oh. website or not, uh, around her her leadership. But regardless, they're doing the right things. They The, the uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is doing the right things. They're reaching out to all of the premiers. They're talking to the me- uh, the big city mayors. Uh, so Christian Freeland today, Minister Freeland, is meeting uh, not only uh, with Jason Kenney, but she's also meeting with Don Iveson, the uh, uh, mayor of Edmonton, who chairs the big city mayor's caucus. Cities will have a large role to play because, in particular, because of housing and infrastructure. And if, if the governments, all levels of government can finally get that right, then Canadians are better off. So is is this a personality transplant and does that kind of thing work? Well, listen, I've... I- 
I've always admired and, and liked uh, the premier before the transfer, the, 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 the change <laughs> and even now. Um, but no, I do think though that, you know, any smart government and every smart leader will course correct, uh, when, when things aren't going right. And quite frankly, you know, the, the successful ones do course correct. Uh, and the time to do it is the time, you know, after the first year in government, not the third year in government when you're just about to go into an election mode. So the fact that he was able to recalibrate and, and, and change things and, and we, we often use the word, We've used the word reset here a number of times where he's reset um, after, um, after you know, the departure of Dean French uh, and the cabinet shuffle. And I think the time off, uh, and, and Kim mentioned this, but the time off during the, uh, during the campaign or the summer, the summer recess and extending it beyond that, I thought was a smart move, not only for his folks to be able to do, uh, his ministers to be able to go and do the announcements that they needed to do and keep him out of the limelight, but also for, for the premier to reflect and, 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 and sort of see what he wanted to do. And I think the key thing coming out of this was um, that when when the prime minister won, despite the fact that the prime minister used you know thirty days plus days to to really go after yeah. him, uh, the premier basically said, "Look, you know what? I uh, politics is politics, and that's fine. Let's move on. Let's shake hands, and let's make sure that you and we get our issues for our respective constituents." There's another angle here, Libby, that's worth raising, and that's the fact that federal conservative leader Andrew Scheer is going down like a submarine. And next April in Toronto, conservatives from across the country will gather and will review his leadership. And the only question now is whether he withdraws before then or uh, faces the music uh, live and in convention. Okay. And so what you're seeing is (laughs) what you're seeing is Doug Ford positioning himself as potentially the next leader of the federal You don't think that's way too French Wait, wait, everybody. You know, (laughs) I want to move on to that. But before we do, I I want to take a call. So let's hear from, excuse me, Sam in Toronto. Hi, Sam. Hi, Libby. Good morning to you. Well, um, I think this, uh, you you said it perfectly. You know, a ministry of uh, silly working class, like Monty (laughs) Python. You know, the... The way it goes, the I'm independent, but like you know, uh, conservative. Whenever they want to justify something, you know, they say, "Oh, we don't want more money, more budget for bureaucracy and all sort of things." But they keep adding when it's their uh, and it's in their. These are liberals. These are liberals. (laughs) It's a federal. Liberals, whatever. What I'm what I'm saying basically now, I I don't follow these like uh, minute details of Canadian politics. But in a lot, what you're saying (laughs) is basically right. They're just adding. These are cliche words, you know. Next thing you're going to have for a ministry of upper middle class or lower middle class or working class or this, you know, everyone is going to ask for their own ministry, you know. So uh, what I think, basically, this is all just this distraction, you know, uh, think tanks, they sit down, they think, oh, what are we going to do to get more votes or to get more people come our way? So, you know, they come up with these phrases, but that's going to cost money. At the end, it's going to cost much more, a lot of money, a lot of people got to go and go after, uh, you know, some uh, magic. Uh, yeah, I imagine she's uh, she's getting she's a minister. She's getting a ministry. Well, uh, Sam, yeah, to Sam's yeah, point, though, gonna have, uh, they're going to have uh, you know uh, vice deputies and deputies and millions of dollars in budget. And about five years from now, someone is going to say, "Hey, it's not working out." Uh, we go, uh, the parliament is going to cancel out the whole thing, and then we are left with this all sort of money that is done. No okay. okay, Sam, thanks very much. It, for it's your not call. dissimilar to an Ontario, in Ontario where we have the Minister of Red Tape Reduction, which seems a little silly that you'd create a ministry for red tape reduction. But, you know, hey, you know, politics but, uh, is politics. You know, you know what? That would have been in the purview of the uh, small it, business yeah, minister did it, did it under to, liberals. Yeah, did yeah. it need to be recalibrated and rebranded? 
you know, all of these things are trying to be a communications exercise. I think the challenge, though, and Sam's point about the costs, I'm not sure about, you know, the, some of the, the some of his other points, but I think the, the, the point about the cost is an, is an interesting one and quite frankly valid in the fact that the prime minister did increase his cabinet size. Yeah. So when he was in a majority government, he had he had so many. And of course, in a minority government, he's added two, uh, two other ministers. And, and with that comes costs, comes the salary yeah. costs, come the cars, come the, the bureaucracy, the departments and, and some of the other issues that, that come. So there is a validness to to, to you know when you increase your cabinet uh, do you get the, the value for the money and I think that's yet to be seen and, and yet to be determined and and, and we'll, a lot of Canadians will look at that and, and judge the prime minister on those issues well yeah so we have to see what this ministry of prosperity is supposed to do and then middle I guess middle class prosperity middle class <laughs> prosperity <laughs> okay yeah let's, let's and if the middle class forget. don't find themselves more prosper in the next yeah. year or two does that mean that this this minister has failed <laughs> Okay, well, I think it means that we've all failed and that the government in particular has failed, but it's going to be part of this is all just the gamesmanship that also comes with the minority government yeah. situation. How do you make sure your own members, your own caucus, your own team are in the tent and have something to run on? Because a lot of them didn't have a lot to run on in this last election mm -hmm. campaign and uh, and felt that sting at the door. But it's also how do you uh, signal to the opposition parties in various ways like we're trying to bring in, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan to to and and play nice around pipelines for the conservatives, but also maybe we'll touch Pharmacare and some other uh, key issues for uh, the New Democrats and the Bloc. And so while, while it's, it's all you know, while, while we're talking about this middle class thing, I'm I'm reminding a couple of things that are not related to Canadian politics, but so I've seen studies that because of the kind of way that locations are used on television, people have an idea of what's middle class that is actually rich people, right? <laughs> right? The houses are rich people. And then I see, I mean, in the Globe, and I, I not, don't remember if it's the Globe and Mail, National Post, one of the papers that do financial profiles of, you know, couples or families and their ability to buy a house. And just yesterday, there was this one, this, this couple make $150,000 and they like foodie vacations and, and they like to spoil their dog. Can they afford to buy a house or save for a house? And it's like, what? Yeah. The, per <laughs> the perspectives of this is, is, are a bit skewed. It, you know, you go back to thinking about, you know, the Cosby show and not where we think about it today, but back then, <laughs> yeah. you know, you've got a doctor and a lawyer, uh, in, you know, this, uh, this nice neighborhood and, and, you know, that was supposed to be middle class. You look at friends, uh, the television show friends, somehow they could afford this great apartment and, and do all of these things. I mean, some of it is a bit, is a bit skewed, but you know, if you go through, uh, any community, uh, throughout Ontario, throughout Canada, and certainly I grew up in, in rural Southern Ontario, and there are a lot of places that are hurting. There are a lot of places where the manufacturing community and the farming communities have taken a hit. Uh, and how do we make sure that, uh, people have, uh, the opportunities? That's why things like broadband, uh, making sure that you actually have proper internet access. There are lots of places throughout this province, throughout this country that are still on dial up, if you can imagine, uh, in this day and age and it, and it really is hurting the economic viability of some of those communities okay on to we were talking about andrew 
Bashir. Oh, he fired sure. two I, of his I, I top. We, Speaking of viability, I thought we John, skipped over that. But, no, but Charles, and, and Charles, Charles has a very interesting point of view on this Charles, one. <laughs> Charles has buried him um, consistently since the election. Uh, look, he does it himself. But at the end of the day, why can't the man just answer a darn question? I've been asking this question, as your listeners will know, Libby. I think I've asked this question on every appearance. Why can't the man just answer the darn questions? Uh, I think he eventually did, but it was a bit late. So is he is on he toast, well, John? So you know. Here's the challenge that he faces, um, and I think that, and 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 you know, as a party member and as somebody who's obviously quite involved and, and likely will be at the convention in, in, in April of 2020, um, the challenge he faces is that there's no, there doesn't seem to be a base for him. Um, you know, th- you would think that given his social conservative beliefs and his views, that the social social conservatives would be supporting him. But you saw in articles that have been since the election campaign, and including today, where even the so- social conservative organizations aren't particularly happy with the way he handled that issue in the election campaign and aren't particularly jumping up to support him now. And then you've got the progressive side of the the party uh, who are obviously are not happy with him and have been very vocal about it. So I think the challenge he faces is that he's got the, 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 there's no base out there that he can rely on to get the votes of the delegates that he needs to get the vote that he requires in April. But what he does have, I think is a caucus supporting him. And I think caucus is one of the key things. He came out of the caucus meeting uh, fairly enriched in the fact that they were all behind him and are prepared to give him his just dues until the convention. And he also, I thought, smartly put John Baird, the former minister in Stephen Harper's government, put John Baird in charge of what he's calling the postmortem or the, the sort of the postmortem for the election. And I think John's going to go across the country as he's been doing, and he's going to come back with some level of report. Uh, and I think he's all of that- very impressive. Uh-huh. But, yeah, but all yeah. of that buys some time for the leader. And then lastly, and I think more importantly, is the House comes back on the 5th of December. So, so you'll be seeing Andrew share more in light of his role as official opposition leader. And I think the questions will be more sort of, you know, judging him in that capacity and not as leader of the Conservative Party. And that'll buy him some time. That's 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 uh, generous of you, John. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the problem Andrew Shear has is an, is an Andrew Shear problem. He has tried to tiptoe around the SoCons and he's tried to tiptoe around the progressives while never telling people who he is and what he thinks. Uh, you know, we've seen conservative leaders in the past say to the SoCons, you know what? Sit down. This is, you know, if we want to keep winning, we want to do things, you don't get to do the big placards and everything else. We've also seen uh, conservative leaders who've uh, been more progressive. But at the end of the day, because no one knows who Andrew Shear is other than the Christmas cards, he cannot say who he is as a leader. He can't say who he is as a person. So he's leaving it to everyone else to cast dispersions. I find it fascinating that Corey Chnaik and others uh, who have built a career based on getting a number of SOCONs elected are saying that SOCONs aren't electable now. I find that fascinating. Ultimately, what it comes down to is an authenticity question, and Andrew Shear has got that in spades. Uh, okay. Uh, what does the audience think? Should the conservatives get rid of Andrew Scheer or does he have a chance? 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. Charles, we've already heard from you on this. So, <laughs> so let's move right along. Uh, this is the first day of work to rule with the teachers. I think that everybody agreed so far. The education minister in Ontario, Stephen Lecce, has been doing a very good job, at least with the PR part of this. And the teachers are saying that some of the services they're cutting back, like comments on report cards, will have no impact. 
Other people are saying, yes, that will hurt students. So where do you think we're at on that? Is, is, you know, if, if there's a strike, clearly that's going to be a problem for well, the government. It, it will be, but also, but it'll also be a problem for the unions as well and for the teachers, unfortunately, because the teachers w- want to do their jobs and they get caught in this all the time. And I think, you know, what you're seeing with the minister is, is an honest to goodness attempt to try to say to the unions, as you heard in your earlier clip, um, that, you know, mediation is there, that their, their team, negotiating team are going to be available 24-7 to try to work things through. Uh, they did it with QP. They were al- allowed to do it with QP, which I think gives the government some credibility in the fact that they are and they have had some successes with unions that are, that are fairly tough against this government. And, and I do believe at the end of the day, it'll come down to parents who will be misplaced or displaced, I guess, uh, when, it, when their kids are, are, are not getting the services and they're not getting the report cards that they need. And that'll turn against the unions. I, I, I firmly believe that this will be a, a campaign that is going to be a public opinion campaign and the parents are going to be the ones that will determine who wins and who doesn't win. And I believe that the government will be on the right side of this. I have always believed, and I said this about CN, I've said this about every opportunity when there has been these negotiations, a negotiated settlement is always the best settlement, not only for all the parties, uh, but it's also the best for taxpayers. It tends, when you start talking about legislating people back or arbitration awards or any of those things, they tend to be more expensive. Yes. And, you know, when, and it's also just, frankly, better will, goodwill amongst all the parties if you can all sit down and figure out how to uh, fi- uh, fix this situation. Education in Ontario is a complex thing between the, the flawed funding formula that doesn't account for, you know, gymnasiums and, and many uh, and, and many programming options to the way that the Ontario government has uh, done some changes to the curriculum and then dialed some of them back and then rechanged some of them. None of this has been helpful. And, you know, Minister Lecce is one of the best uh, when it comes to sticking to talking points and seeming empathetic. But ultimately, the ministry and the unions all need to get back to the table. They need to keep working through their issues. And maybe if there is pressure, sure, I get it. Work to rules are never fun, but they're a lot better than strikes. But ultimately, whatever you need to do to get everyone back to the table to be honest brokers and stop playing politics with this. So, uh, Charles, what do you think? Who's winning this, at least in terms of PR? Libby, I have six in-laws who are high school teachers, so I have to be incredibly careful. (laughs) Okay. um, I, I think John is absolutely right. It really does come down to the parents that matters enormously to the unions that matters enormously to uh, the government as well and to Minister Lecce. Um, so there are really two major components to this. Obviously, there's the salary component, but there's also the question of student environment, which is equally as critical. And that goes to class size, that goes to resources. And I think more than anything, the challenge for the unions will be making sure that it just doesn't, they don't come across as, as a greed fest, that it doesn't come across as more union, you know, let's see how much we can get out of these guys and take it to the wall, et cetera, et cetera. Can they actually position these issues as being more about the students as about themselves. Because I think most teachers, and I say this specifically to my in-laws, wonderful people, (laughs) 
hardworking people. Um, I mean, every time we have a family gathering, all, it's it's just a constant conversation about what's going on in the classroom and what are the challenges and what are the opportunities. But absolutely unbridled optimism in our kids, which mm-hmm. is always a pleasure to hear. And I think too, just to Charles's point, I think the teachers sometimes get caught in the middle of this in some ways, and then they get and and they get, they'll get vilified in 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 the process because the unions, uh, you know, will take a stand, and and of course teachers will vote in favor of certain things and strike actions because that's the right to do so. Uh, but you know, ninety nine point nine percent of our teachers do an amazing job, and and uh, you know, and 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 it's a tough job, but they do get caught in the middle of this. But I think I think the parents are hopefully that your in laws, Charles, will. We'll be listening to that. And <laughs> hey, thank you. Hey, thank you. Yeah, ultimately, we need to make sure that kids are having a proper learning environment that they can thrive in, but also that with the programming options uh, that take into consideration not only science and technology, but also uh, arts and, and uh, you know, all of that combined. And oftentimes those those type of things get lost in the shuffle of uh, is it the teacher's problem? Is it the government's problem? How do we how do we recalibrate education and education funding to really focus on kids? kids in our communities. Okay, well, we haven't talked about school boards and all of that, but we don't have time today. Uh, We've got to wrap things up for today. Very quickly, each of you, what should we look for in the coming week until we meet again? Well, I think uh, all eyes are federally. You know, we, we, you've been talking about it as far as the premiers all meeting with uh, with uh, Minister Freeland and the and the Prime Minister, obviously. But I think the House comes back uh, in the first order of business as the Speaker of the House, and then the throne speech, which will be interesting. Obviously, it'll get passed, and who will be voting for it and who won't be voting for it will be interesting to see. Uh, for me, I'm watching how the how the premiers and and municipal leaders. All we're in Ottawa right now for FCM's uh, lobby days, but also how do we make sure that those infrastructure dollars finally get spent? The communities are actually being enhanced because that's what it all boils down to. Charles and I'm looking to the start of the Ontario Liberal leadership race, which oh, I think will yes. heat up in a major way. And uh, obviously, we have uh, we didn't six talk candidates. about that. No, um, but uh, <laughs> and there's but lots to talk about. Charles, talk. I, I, have, I have a feeling that uh, we will have occasion to in uh, future sessions. There's some okay. great candidates. Okay, we will talk about that the next time. We did uh, talk to one of the candidates yesterday. Uh, Never mind. (laughs) We'll get into it on another day. Is that Brenda that you talked to? No, that was not Brenda. Um, Right now, thank you so much, Kim Wright, John Capobianco, and Charles Bird. We will see you again very soon. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Thanks. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.